to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan, weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so uh, you hopefully had the joy of reading uh, one of the more well-known uh, prophets, but um, maybe uh, maybe uh, refreshed or first time uh, seeing new things as you read it. And so, um, yeah, we walked through Jonah this past week, and um, this is a time kind of leading up before, likely before the, the fall of the Northern Kingdom. Uh, we, we know from uh, the histories that Jonah uh, was at the same time as Jeroboam II, which was a time of Israel's prosperity. Uh, this was a time in terms of um, it was expanding its borders. It mm-hmm. was um, financially or materialistically successful, though from the other prophets that we've already read, we, we know some of that was based upon uh, injustice to the poor, the oppressed, and the process. Um, but Israel was doing really well. They were they were becoming, um, at least in in very worldly eyes, a successful country. Uh, but it also led them to some nationalistic pride, to, uh, maybe some hatred towards the outsider, separatism. And so this book sort of fits into that time frame um, about kind of challenging the question of Israel. What do you really think about your neighbors? Um, what what do you think about the Assyrians to the north? And and the Assyrians, I mean. Even though this this book will include a mission to the Syrians, I mean it's still important to know the Syrians were pretty pretty brutal people. Um, we don't have a lot of histories of warfare, but we have a lot actually about the Assyrians, and and they were pretty ruthless, and 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 so they're not exactly the the ideal in the storyline either. And so um, there, there's all these kind of characters throughout the story: the sailors, the the Syrians, all these things that that play out. Um, and and the, the book is just filled with irony and satire and hyperbole mm-hmm. and all these things. So yes, it's definitely. I think sometimes we get hung up on the historicity and the details and the miracles, but um, at the same time, I think we miss the literary cues and the things that this text is really about. The questions it's probably asking of of Israel, the question, what it's revealing about God and His mission towards the the nations, and so and his graciousness and so yeah there's all those pieces yeah i think reading jonah right now is kind of like coming up for air in a lot of this really heavy um condemnation focused prophetic poetry and so it's kind of nice to read prophetic narrative to read a story that can almost be interpreted in some ways like a parable and i'm not saying it is a parable but you follow the story of this person and the irony in it and like Chris mentioned the satire in it uh, is just super amazing I feel like if you grew up uh, with like flannel graphs or whatever talking about the story of Jonah when we read it with a different kind of context and understanding of the writing style and what point it is really meant to illustrate it can be kind of one of those aha moments where you see something that you can't unsee again Um, so I hope it's enlightening to you and I think the emphasis to look for as we read the book of Jonah though I suppose you've already read it is is the compassion of God. And so we've spent so much time talking about on the judgment and the condemnation that God executes, um, which is part of his character. But here we see his compassion, which is neat to follow and to watch. Yeah. And so uh, we find out, yeah, Jonah's mission is to Nineveh. This is the capital of the Assyrian uh, kingdom. And uh, basically, Jonah's told, go give a warning message to your enemies. like, uh, that that's that's the message he's called to do, and uh, sort of the shock to your sentence opening here. Uh, the prophet doesn't go do his job. Uh, all right. the other prophets we've had up to this point seem to go do their job, whether they really loved it or not. And uh, Jonah's Jonah's just done. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He heads to Tarsus, which is a city that we don't know. Some some think it's Spain. Some some think the words related to like paradise or something like that. But he, he's just trying to get as far away from uh, from uh, Nineveh as he possibly can. 
can. And so, um, yeah, but the opening, it just puts Jonah, this prophet, the prophet of God, uh, and the son of truth, son of, son of Amittai, uh, just on this path to disobedience. Right. And here we also see Assyria, the Ninevites, are really wicked. They're evil, like Chris mentioned. They are not worshiping Yahweh, and they are mistreating others. And yet, here again, we see this first picture of God's compassion. God is creating an opportunity even for these wicked Assyrians to repent and to find him and to worship him. And Jonah, the one of Israel, is to be the representation of God to these people, and he does not want his role. And I think we should step back and reflect, are there times that we resent what God is asking us to do? Or are there times that we even resent the gifts that God has given us? Where is God inviting you to do something? Where are you hearing an invitation from God and not obeying? And so uh, we get this amazing scene with the boat and we find these pagans on the boat who uh, are clearly identified as that. They're like telling Jonah, hey, worship your God. Um, and and ultimately, uh, by the end of the, the whole storm story, we, we kind of get these pagan sailors who turn and are willing to fear God and actually worship God. And we have Jonah who says he fears God, but he wants nothing to do with it. And this, this prophet's willing to die while the pagan sailors repent. And, and the sailors are interested in like truth. Like what is, what is true? What Jonah, who are you? Who's your God? What are you doing? They, they delay any attempt on Jonah's life. So even when Jonah's like, kill me, they're like, no, we'll, we'll try this. And, and so like the, the virtuous repenters in the story are the pagans and the questionable character the whole time is Jonah. It's meant to feel like counterintuitive and satirical as it goes. Yeah, I think part of the scene happening where there's this water and the storm and uh, Jonah going into the sea is that, again, remember, as we look throughout scripture, large bodies of water tend to represent judgment. Mm -hmm. And so we see Jonah coming under the judgment of God. You know, he was supposed to go speak repentance to Nineveh and rejected it. And so he is coming under God's judgment. And yet we also see Jonah's hypocrisy and his disobedience, even in, in him expressing some sort of faith in the midst of straight up disobedience. But the others are turning to God. And so I think the author here is really strategic in pointing out that everyone and everything in creation is fearing God except for Jonah. And again, this speaks a larger story to Israel right now. Yeah. And so the great fish swallows Jonah. It is great fish in Hebrew, not whale, but hey, it might be a whale. Uh, and so um, it's a downward spiral in the storytelling. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the fish. Um, it's kind of this constant down, 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 down before we're going to be brought back up. Um, and there's other places, Jeremiah 54, Psalm 124, where there's language around Israel's disobedience and being swallowed up by a sea monster because of their sin. And so... Um, the idea that there's some allegorical play in a story, it's there. And um, that doesn't necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying there's not historicity to it, um, but the allegory, the the uh, parabolic uh, telling um, is certainly in the story as well. Right. And so we see Jonah go into the judgment of God through these waters and he doesn't pass through them like the ark passed through. He's, he goes into it for three days and three nights. And Matthew, Jesus in the book of Matthew says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we see here that Jonah is a type or a picture of Christ, but he is completely insufficient because Jonah is unwilling to pass through this judgment, unlike Christ, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Right. Well, and even that Matthew one, the, the sort of 
tail end of that paragraph involves the Ninevites uh, and and the Queen of Sheba, these these Gentiles who the G- G- the Jews were called to to be witnesses to come and repent. Anyways, so there, yeah. there's certainly some parallels in the story. Um, and then we get to Jonah's prayer, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. I, I've I've preached through Jonah, and I think Jonah's prayer is one of the harder things to really get a get a sense mm-hmm. of exactly what's happening. Um, I, I think there's irony in it, like where Jonah's saying, "I was driven away from your sight," and you're like, "Really, Jonah? You ran away from God's right. sight?" Or God, you threw me into the deep. It's like, Jonah, you asked to be thrown into the deep from the boat. Uh, not only that, but he quotes Psalms. And sometimes he takes a line from Psalms where Yahweh is like the start of the sentence. And he puts Yahweh at the end of the sentence. So there's ways where Jonah's just like, you're, you're kind of questioning how much of this prayer is legitimate. How much of him is just like, you know what? I still don't want to go to Nineveh, but I don't want to be in the belly of fish. So whatever gets me out, I'm fine with that. And so um, it, it's hard to sometimes read into Jonah's um, drive or true repentance in this um, because it's not like we suddenly get to chapter three and Jonah's like a truly changed guy. And so um, it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a struggle to, to interpret a little bit of his prayers here. And he's saying some of the right things. I'm not going to deny that, um, but it's just sometimes a struggle to be like, okay, but like what's, what's the heart behind this Jonah? Yeah. And I, you know, if we, if we consider Jonah being a representation of Israel, this I mean, I feel like the connections are a lot stronger yeah. almost in the behavior of being like, oh, this stuff is happening to us we don't like, so we are going to repent. Not necessarily because we um, feel affection for Yahweh, but because we want to be under his blessing rather than his judgment or his punishment. And so I even think, you know, the the way that verse that talks about how the fish vomited Jonah out is just kind of said really plainly and simply. It almost kind of feels like a... I'm, I'm over these flowery prayers, Jonah. I get that you have nothing else to do when you're stuck in a fish. So let's move on. Yeah. So go. So go to Nineveh. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and and he goes. And he does. And and we don't <laughs> we don't know whether I mean it, it, maybe God had a longer message in this, but the storyteller is certainly pointing out that Jonah preaches like the shortest sermon ever, uh, and um, he just simply says, "In forty days, Nineveh shall be overthrown." No talk of repentance. No even naming of Yahweh as being the judgment bringer. None of that is included, at least in his one sentence call. But yet. Um, he even in this sort of like pseudo obedience, like the city changes and and he preaches condemnation, which is probably what Jonah wants. Um, but uh, it ends up causing this whole city to turn. So up to this point, we've seen all of the people on the boat that Jonah's with confess God. We've seen a fish obey God in vomiting Jonah out. Yeah. And now we see Jonah going to Nineveh and all these people are starting to fast and repent. It's, I mean, it's just, it's so obvious how the author is pointing out here. There's one who is not repentant. Yep. Uh, and they believed God, uh, same phrasing, uh, that, that we'd use for Abraham. Abraham believed God and cre- credited as a righteousness that the Ninevites believe God. And, and once again, like this is supposed to be a shock to our sense, even the king, like, and the animals. Yeah. Even the animals. <laughs> but like that you have, like I said, one of the most brutal kingdoms in some of the histories and their leader, their, their sort of pharaoh in the in the storytelling, repents and and God relents from whatever kind of overthrow he's going to do, and it's great. Like the city ends up still being overthrown, but overthrown by the repentance, but overthrown mm-hmm. by by turning back, and um, and then we get to chapter four where um, the, they're sort of. Finally, some judgment comes to the story in some ways, but actually comes upon the prophet in the process. And um, and and, and uh, 
before you say that, I just want to yeah, point yeah, out too with the people of Nineveh repenting. Like here again, we see God's compassion, his heart that all people would know him and worship him because he is worthy of worship and because there is freedom and deliverance from any sort of enslavement when we live out God's design for us. And so like we see in, in Genesis 1 and 2 and promises in 3 and in the Abrahamic covenant, God wants to be the God of all nations. And so we see the people of Nineveh being invited to be part of this kingdom that fears God. Yep. And so uh, Jonah, Jonah sort of admits like, look, I didn't want to go do this because I knew any antiquating existence process. I knew you were gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You relent from disaster. And, and so Jonah's like, I knew you were like this. And, and Jonah's experienced God's mercy already in the storytelling in the previous chapter. But he just does not want God's mercy for the Assyrians, for his enemies. Um, and, and so, and we get the refrain question that happens twice. Like, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Like, Jonah, in my mercy, my slow to anger, my abounding love, if I choose to extend that beyond Israel to, to the Assyrians, to other nations, is that okay? Are you right? Are you, are you just in being angry? And... Um, yeah, it's such a it's such an interesting uh, kind of question here, and uh, I think what the challenge is, is is Jonah. Have you lost the point of the story? Like, like and 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 broader the Israelites. Like you are called to to bless all the nations, and that includes loving your enemies. That includes care for the outsiders. God has a greater mission to use you uh, to ultimately change the world, and so my, the purpose of God is to draw all people to Himself, and so um, we should celebrate that, even if it's people that we think for whatever reason don't deserve it or we struggle to forgive or struggle to to want to love like that that is sort of the drive and israel has become so self-oriented and they're nationalistic they're 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 basking in their comforts that they've lost god's story god's heart for mm-hmm. for the world and so um this is sort of a challenge and indictment in some ways to leave them going are you right to be angry like that this that that god would be compassionate towards the outsider and do these things yeah, I think the story ends pretty abruptly and it ends abruptly on purpose to point out. So the readers are like, well, this is just like the story is ridiculous. Yeah. Jonah has no perspective. He has no understanding of what God is doing and where God is at work because he's so focused on himself. And again, we, you know, kind of like pan back the film and we see that whole story of Israel right now being really focused on themselves themselves and they don't know that everything is kind of falling apart around them because they haven't submitted to God. Yeah, it's almost like that riddle for for David. It was like, oh, like you set up all these characters and then you kind of point out, oh, like David, you realize that this is about you. And like yeah. I think it's the same thing for Israel being like, oh, we are Jonah. And and so to come to this realization of 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 hopefully that the, the struggle of their call to to go to the nations. Yeah. And so Nahum Anything else on Jonah? Great. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Nahum. Uh, and so I, I think it's so good to read these books back to back. And and like I point out, the Assyrians are pretty awful. And so we know we know they're pretty, pretty terrible. And I think we're kind of left. I think we should be left a little bit leaving the book of Jonah going and be like, what, what about justice? Like, does God still care about injustice if if the assyrians have like there's repentance and and we're supposed to go preach to our enemies and and our enemies are still pretty awful and still are brutal and still killing people and are doing some of the stuff maybe even israel did but that much worse like where is justice god you yes you're slow to anger i understand that 
but when does the anger finally come in? Even if it's slow, when does it, when does it, act, when does it happen? And so, uh, God, do, are you still just, do you still care? Do you, do you still bring comfort to us who are suffering? And, and I think Nahum provides a little bit of the answer to that. Yeah. So Nahum is written after Israel goes into exile. So that's one piece of it is they're living under kind of God's judgment to them. And they still, whether they truly, love God or not, consider themselves to be people who follow Yahweh. Um, and there is some sort of affection and allegiance to God. And so they will ask about God's sovereignty and his justice in the midst of, of this, especially when they are under the oppression and judgment from another nation. Yeah. And we get such a different opening. If, if Jonah's sort of ending with us where he's acknowledging that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, Nahum starts by the Lord is jealous and avenging. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. And so um, we certainly know the tone right from the get go. And it's just so different. And yes, this group in the Northern Kingdom has been uh, taken into captivity. The, the Southern Kingdom has been attacked quite a bit. Um, and and this is why Nahum is actually, I mean, the word means comfort. His name means comfort. But like, does God care? Yes, he does. And, and the injustice of even Israel's oppressors will be dealt with as much as Israel was dealt with for being oppressive. And so um, that, that this is a pronouncement against Nineveh, not Israel, not Judah, uh, but against the Assyrians. Yeah. So in Jonah, we saw God's omnipotence or how he's all powerful in the fact that whoever he wanted to come to repentance would come to repentance, whether the the deliverer of that news was um, obedient or not. And here we see God's omnipotence, all powerfulness in him using his creation to bring judgment and wrath on his adversaries. And yet this ends with hope and it ends with hope for Israel when it talks about the feet, you know, messengers, the way that they would deliver news was through messengers on their feet, through running or walking or whatever. And so this is promising that one day, even though they are living under bad news, one day there will be a messenger that will bring good news again and that will bring peace. And so we see hope and promise within God. God's promise of his promise of his judgment. Yep. And so chapter two, we get a lot of rich imagery about these different chariots and all this other stuff, but ultimately communicating that Nineveh's reign is coming to an end, like this lion who has hunted its prey, stockpiled in its cave. And, and we've seen the use of lion as sort of like the, the judgment in, in some of the previous prophets, but this lion, the Assyrians will be destroyed and God has it against them. And they've even done some of the same thing. There's idolatry in the Assyrians, um, their, their murderous treatment of others. It, it even says that the lions have like stockpiled in their caves. And so, um, there's some of the same indictments of Israel are the same things that, that are being indicted against the Assyrians. Yeah. And, you know, there's some comments here on the covenant of God, too. And we see in this chapter that the ending for those who are not under God's covenant is different from those who are. And this is the same for us in salvation. There's plenty that we will endure as followers of Christ, but we will not be sent to a complete end because the Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. And so we'll finish up Mark and Acts as well. Well, we're not finish up Acts. We'll finish up Mark, though. And so uh, we get to, to Pilate and uh, this whole custom of, of pardoning someone on Passover week. Uh, and um, it, it almost feels like Pilate's probably just toying with them. I'm sure. I mean, they hold all the cards and all the power. And at some point they're like, hey, if this makes you happy, we'll do this every year. And um, and these people that were often arrested and held by Romans were, were political insurrectionists. Romans didn't care about some of the, the religious problems and stuff like that. But um, they do care about political insurrectionists. And so um, how much how much more fitting than that that for many, Jesus was coming into town. They expected him to be this political messiah. He was going to set up shop, all this kind of stuff. He was going to be this, this um, resurrect, or, um, revolutionary movement. And now they see he's not really like that. And now 
now that Jesus does not completely match their agenda, they're happy to have him killed. And they end up choosing a, a new Jesus, which uh, Barabbas in the earliest manuscripts is Jesus Barabbas and eventually origin and others say, we have to take the word Jesus out. Um, but, uh, Barabbas, uh, is, is the Jesus of their choosing. The, the one who's much more like them created in their image is interested in the things that they're interested in. Um, and, and they choose that instead. And, um, it, it's such a interesting, um, play out of the two characters, uh, for them being like, Hey, we want the Jesus that's more palatable to us as opposed mm-hmm. to the Jesus as he is. Yeah, I mean, we see here that we, you and I, are Barabbas in this story too. There are yep. so many connections and parallels. Barabbas should have been the one who was punished for his sin, which was murder and insurrection. But Jesus had done either and took or went in place of Barabbas to punishment. Yep. Yeah, I was, I was kind of joking that uh, if there's anybody who can quite literally say Jesus died in my place, it's Barabbas. And so um, that, that is his, his uh, claim uh, upon that uh, phrase. And then... Uh, uh, we get to sort of the the crucifixion, and here's where I think um, some of Mark's Romanesque kind of language comes out that much more. Um, we we know some of the the, the histories around uh, emperors, Caesars, and their coronation process, and uh, one of those uh, processes we have is Nero's, and um, he was an emperor likely when Peter and Mark are likely preaching uh, in Rome, and so uh, there's sort of nine steps to that process. There's a there's step one where the Praetorian Guard all gathers or at the Praetorium. Step two, where the, the royal robes are placed on the emperor. He's given a wreath and a scepter. Step three, they're, they're led through this procession. There's usually incense and other things. Step four is uh, Caesar's followed by whatever the sacrifice is for that day. In, C- in Nero's case, it was a bull. And, and Caesar would carry the, the instrument of death to, to head hill. And then um, at step five, Caesar's offered wine mixed with myrrh. And, and he would deny it to show that he has need for nothing. He is self-sufficient. Uh, step six, the bull would be killed and Caesar would declare life for um, some, um, usually uh, uh, criminals or whatever. Some would get life and some would get death. And then uh, at step seven, emperor ascends the steps to the temple with high priest on his left and um, a commander or a high priest on his right and a commander on his left. Step eight, everybody claims him as Lord as he ascends the steps. And then step nine, everybody waits for some miraculous sign that the Nero would have. Um, uh, he had an eclipse as well. Others had had like a comet in the sky and all this. And so um, what I think Mark does, and um, some of this is because details just get changed where, where you have Matthew talk about vinegar and then suddenly Mark's like wine mixed with myrrh. So, okay. Well, what's happening there where those are, those are two very different things. And, and I've heard some people try to try to blend them, but at the same time, I mean, Mark is speaking to a um, likely Roman audience about, the crucifixion of Jesus, and um, and and so you have a culture of victory and of conquest and of triumph. And how do you tell the story of the crucifixion, which is like the most shameful way to die in in a, in a Roman context? It would it would it would sound like total and utter defeat. How do you tell of that in such a way that actually portrays the theology of what actually happened? Uh, and, and, and I think Mark creates some intentional parallels where, yeah, maybe Jesus was given vinegar where Mark's like, okay, like, yes, Jesus was offered this thing that is, this is like grapes, but I'm going to use the Caesar symbol of this because what's happening at the cross is Jesus's coronation and Jesus's victory and Jesus's triumph. And, and so he's using sort of the element of sort of a Roman coronation, the, the good news of a king taking his throne and connecting it to the crucifixion itself. So his audience understands that that much more that, that the cross isn't defeat, but the cross is victory. And so he uses a lot of the same things. We see the, the, the Jesus led to praetorium. We see the robes and the 
wreath and scepter. We see the procession, the, the, the bull is actually absent, but even with Simon of Cyrene starting to carry it across, Jesus becomes the bull in the story. And then Simon of Cyrene is carrying the instrument of death. They go to Golgotha, which means skull or head. Um, Jesus is offered that wine mixed with myrrh. There's a division of things. There's um, people on the right and the left. There's revilement that he's the king of Israel and, and the Christ. And ultimately darkness comes over the whole land. Like all the pieces are there in the order that they are supposed to be. And so um, I, I think Mark is pretty genius to, to probably do this or Peter when he's preaching it, pretty genius for his audience to go okay like what we see in crucifixion is a coronation start ceremony it's it's the king taking his place on the throne it's amazing i I think mark or peter is brilliant to do it this way yeah it's a really cool i mean i couldn't have found that parallel so i'm (laughs) glad you found it and shared it with us i do think it brings a, a different layer of understanding and insight to what we're reading here yeah and so um but but Jesus dies and and it's fascinating once again the, the the one person who really seems to click in that moment is a Roman centurion. It's not one of the disciples. It's not anybody. I mean, it's it's meant to be like okay, like Roman people who are listening to this, like you can get this, like this Roman centurion does too. Um, and the kingdom just comes without violence and warfare as you expect, but through Jesus and his upside down kingdom. Yeah, and so and I think you know as we read about the death of Jesus, we need to go back to the reason Mark wrote this. Mark one one says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So one of Mark's primary goals here was to prove that Jesus was the Son of God, and we see this happening really strategically in these couple verses where Mark points us out his death occurring at the same time as the temple curtain tearing proves that he is the Son of God, and even the centurion confessing him as the Son of God is a declaration that Jesus truly was more than just a man yep so jesus is buried and he's buried by a member of the sanhedrin um we haven't talked a lot about the sanhedrin they're kind of the supreme court of israel at the time they've got sadducees which are the priests they've got some pharisee pharisees who are the religious conservatives and it seems at least one if not a few more by the book of acts like seem to understand jesus as he was or that he was at least worthy of a decent burial let alone to be believed in yeah, and so one of the things to point out too here is the role that women play in this last section. Um, when he's crucified, it's pointed out that there are women who are witnessing his death. And then when he's buried, again, it's pointed out that women are witnesses. And back in these times, they wouldn't even allow women to really be witnesses. And so there's a, a dignifying of their position and authority through being faithful disciples of Christ, um, just even in the way that Mark is pointing out the role that they played and what they witnessed here at the end of of Jesus's life and yeah. then his resurrection. Yeah. I mean, Mark's not fully Lucan and how much he includes women in the storyline, but Mark still makes sure he does. And, um, it's still essential to, to tell the story with these characters and, um, and, and that they're given a role of, uh, position and authority and dignity and all these kind of things. And so, uh, and we're kind of, um, depending on your Bible and what translation you're using and, and how footnotes work. Um, Mark either ends at verse eight or at verse 20. Um, and uh, your footnotes might give you a little explanation about that. Um, I, I'm under the conviction that uh, Mark historically has ended at verse eight. The earliest manuscripts we can find have it end at verse eight, but um, there's later manuscripts that, that do include the extra nine through 20. Um, and I, I, I do think it ends sort of abruptly because I think it's the same way that Jonah ends abruptly. I think we're kind of left with sort of that, mm-hmm. that sort of question that, that the Romans would have been left with of going, okay, like, do, do I believe that Jesus got out of the grave? And do I have amazement and fear and terror with and misunderstanding and bewilderment and all these kind of things that, that these women are sort of left with as well to identify with them? Um, and, and because 
eventually nine through 20, like the language changes quite a bit. It becomes sort of like church focused in terms of the disciples and their signs and baptism and all these other things. And the language is, it's just not the same. The theology seems a little bit off. And um, I've even listened to, to, to some of the editors of the SV and others kind of say like, look, the King James still has a ton of influence. And, um, and if you were to, if you want your King James readers to also read your edition, you gotta be really cautious of what you take back out. Um, and so they've started learning to footnote it. Some will put the whole section as a footnote. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I, I'm not planning on parsing out any of that text just because I, I I just don't think it's necessary for the podcast. Um, I think it adds more confusion more than anything else because it just takes so many random turns uh, in in that text where it gets into snake handling and all this other stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. That's fine with me. We, um, what are your final thoughts on the book of Mark? Yeah. Um, I mean, I like Mark. I, I've preached to Mark. Um, uh, I, I don't love Mark as much as I used to. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I think sometimes really portraying that, that the kingdom of God is not about, um, because the way Mark is told about power and position and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus kind of presenting himself as the one who does have power, but then like spending the other half of the whole gospel being like, but he was a servant and and he was lowly and he would suffer mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. It, um, it just constantly challenges me to go like, okay, I live in a country that that power and position still matter. I, I hear those stories all the time, um, and um, and and we all like to have some level of authority and some stuff like that. But the the sort of laying down of self, the the sort of taking up the cross that that Mark really makes a very clear turn on as he tells his gospel. I mean, it becomes convicting of going like, how much do I really follow the servanthood of Jesus and how I live? Um, and 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 yes, the thankfulness that Jesus did that for me—that He was willing to serve all the way to the cross for my sins. But how much do I really do that? How much am I the, the foot washer, and how much am I the one who's not jockeying for position and power, and is more than glad to be last uh, in in order to to be the first and and to welcome the, the littlest ones who have nothing? And so, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of that. I think that's a challenge, personally. Yeah, I think I found Mark to be kind of puzzling to study. <laughs> um, and I found the same with Matthew and Luke. I think it just may be the way that I'm wired or that I think and approach things. Um, I found it frustrating at some points because I felt like there was more there than I was truly getting and connecting. But we do see these really strong themes of Jesus as the son of man and the son of God and that heart for service. Um, and I, th- I do think what stood out to me probably more this time around was just following the stories of the disciples and how they are emphasized as just messing up all the time. And you don't really see a resolution there in the book of Mark. And that gives me hope uh, that, that I can mess up all the time and there is still restoration available and optional for me. Yeah. And and I want to make a comment on something Sarah just said, where she said, she feels like there's more there and she just doesn't know what it is. Yeah. That, I hope that's always the experience. And, um, and the reason why is because like we, even as we talk through this stuff, we're still not the experts and there's plenty of people who know way more about these things and have studied these things. And I think Jesus always has way more for us in scriptures. And I mean, I, I I even joked with Sarah the other day. I'm like, uh, I want to go back and record some of the stuff because I've, I've even learned more since the last time we recorded those things. And, um, and we're not going to necessarily do that, but um, there's 
coming to God's word is, is meant to be this treasure and that you can never stop mining. And, mm. um, and, and there's things in it to, to continue to dive into, to continue to think through going, all right, well, why does Mark have this here? And, and what is he trying to tell us? And how is he connecting these dots? And why go from this story to this story? Like what, how are they related? And, and, and what does Jesus really want us to know about himself in that process? And so, um, if you get to where you're reading it and you're like, I don't know, I was like, okay, good. Like you're not alone. And and that will be a constant practice. And maybe you'll start connecting dots, or maybe you'll, you know, God will, through His Spirit will reveal more in the process to you, and 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 to see more of yourself and more of who Jesus is and all those kind of things. But um, that's the journey, and and that's why uh, blessed is a man who 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 meditates on this stuff, who chews mm-hmm. on it, and um, and 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 that's that's sort of the, the practice that and the discipline we start creating in ourselves. Yeah. So uh, the book of Acts, uh, we we kind it's of been a up. minute yeah, since we've been in Acts. We've we've had letters to Corinth and to Rome and to Galatia and Thessaloniki and uh, Paul's been through Ephesus and Greece and all these other places. But he's back in Jerusalem. People are telling him, "Hey, if you get there, you're probably going to die." And he's sort of like, "Yeah, that's okay." And so he gets there and he has this interaction with James, who's has these Jewish people who still want to follow the customs, but we understand we're not supposed to hold Greek people to it. And Paul's sort of like, "Okay, that's fine." It's a little peculiar. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so basically they ask him to do a Nazarite vow and prove to people in Jerusalem that he's still a devout Jew. And Paul complies, which kind of surprised me because Paul tends to be kind of non-compliant about this stuff. But I think we see his willingness to be all things to all people. And in order to avoid conflict that would distract or detract from the gospel, um, his willingness to submit to the guidance of church elders. But it doesn't accomplish its goal because no. everybody else is like, Paul, Paul basically gets his Jesus treatment. There's an angry mob, right? To see right. him die. They even assume, because they had seen him walking with some other Greek guy that's Gentile, that he must have brought him into the temple and he defied the temple, even though it didn't necessarily happen. And so, um, yeah, there's just this mob who's ready to kill Paul, just as the people warned Paul about. Yeah, it's interesting to read this the same week that we read about the crucifixion because it just it feels really parallels, parallel. Yeah. yeah. And then this captain realizes Paul's not this random Egyptian criminal for some reason, uh, that he's a Jew, and he ultimately gives him a moment to speak. And Paul starts telling his testimony, and we're going to see him tell testimony this week. We're going to see some more next week. Um, and and Paul's sort of um, um, uh, interpretation of the events of those. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk through that. But Paul highlights like he was absolutely against the way he was, he was mm-hmm. absolutely fighting against the rise of Christianity. And he's like, I was, I was going hard after them and, and he doesn't deny it. But, but then he's like, but I had this experience on Damascus road and, and I can't deny that. Like, even though I was persecuting Christians in the synagogues, like Jesus ended up being real to me. And, and he sent me off to preach the good news to the Gentile. I don't know what to tell you. Like, this is what happened to me. Like I, I tried to put an end to this, but it's real. And so yeah. what do you want me to do? So, yeah. Yeah, I think as Paul shares his story, he emphasizes the part that's going to be relevant to those who are listening. And so that's an encouragement to you and me as well to be prayerful as you testify about the gospel and even the gospel in your own life. Think about what points or ask the Lord for direction on what to share and what not to share when you um, talk about what the Lord has done in your life. Yeah, and in Psalm 42... Yeah, I mean, it's just a really good picture of living in the already and not yet. I think we're discouraged and we're downcast, but our hope is in God and his steadfast love commands us and our longing is for him alone. Yeah, it's definitely a, a bit of lament. Uh, they're sort of like, mm-hmm. all right, uh, I've, I've suffered, there's been troubles, but maybe it's an exile. The temple feels remote and I just want renewal. I want your presence again. And, and this might be um, 
this might be a random person, might be even David that, that he's he's prevented a return to Jerusalem and he's just um, just wants to be back in God's presence again. Uh, so next week, what are we looking out for? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think Isaiah is going to be tough to get through next week, at least if you read like I do. So um, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of context to understand and we don't always have time to dive that deep or even don't know where to dive that deep. But just, I would encourage you every time when you sit down to read Isaiah, just to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you direction and understanding that you need to have and, um, and ask the Lord that just really divinely to increase your capacity to understand how big and great he is as you study Isaiah. And in the New Testament, like we talked about even just a couple minutes ago, compare what's happening with Paul to Christ's crucifixion. It's somewhat similar. But Paul is going to escape Jerusalem. But let's see where it goes. Yeah, and and um, yeah, mine mine similar to the Old Testament. Like, try your best to keep up with maybe some of the context, but do not feel weighed down by it. I think it's some of it may be helpful, but it's not going to revolutionize your reading of Isaiah. And uh, and as you go through that section, and then the New Testament, um, we get into Paul kind of telling his testimony again. But but look how some of the differences are there between how he's telling it and how Luke told the story earlier in Acts. And compare and contrast. There's extra dialogue. There's different details. And so what might Paul be doing? What might Luke be doing uh, in in telling what what has Paul understood about himself? Maybe in the process. That's it. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.